Today's scripture comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 35 through 43. Please follow along with me behind on the screen. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Morning. My name is Justin, one of the elders here. Let me pray for us. Father, we don't need um, a good sermon. We don't even need all of the strings on the guitar to sound right. We need your presence. Lord, I have in view here Moses as he's on Mount Sinai. And he says, Lord, if your presence will not go with us, then don't send us. Lord, if your presence will not be here, then we don't want to be here. And what's interesting about your presence is, Lord, we need it even if we don't know we need it like a child needing the presence of their parent for safety. Lord, come like our good Father and meet us where we are. Give us the, the richness of yourself and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that set of verses picks us back up in John, where we've been at for a couple of months. And those eight verses are really pregnant with a lot of theological and intellectual questions. And as the father of four, let me tell you one thing you never do with a pregnant woman, is ask her to walk too far. I've made that mistake. I, I have in mind here in Washington, D.C., in the middle of July... My wife was pregnant with our first, and she just quit on me. 
We were somewhere around the Washington Monument. It's like 100 degrees, and she just sat down. My feet are the size of golf balls. I said, baby, we're, we're a long way from the car. She said, I don't care. Go find the car and come pick me up. I said, well, I don't even remember where the car was parked. I don't care. Go find the car and pick me up. So here's what we're not going to do with this pregnant set of verses. We're not going to try and cover too much ground. We're, we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing in these eight verses. Now, what's important, because we are picking back up, is let's remember where we are 12 chapters in. We've just seen Jesus uh, sort of uh, beginning the finishing week of his earthly ministry. He's entered into Jerusalem after what would really be about an eight-month farewell tour. So he had been touring the countryside of Israel, heading towards Jerusalem for that Good Friday. And so he's already entered into and been greeted by the people. Remember, at this point, there's, there's probably about two million Jews that have converged on Jerusalem for the Passover. It's a lot of people. And so he's going around in the synagogue and in the marketplace and, and speaking. People are asking him questions. They've heard of this person. And so here we are in chapter 12, verses 35 through 43. And because there is so much stuffed in here, theologically, intellectually, experientially, let's, let's just get our feet underneath us. And so here's what I'd like to do is let's just walk through the verses together and then we just have one main point. And I think we can do that together. So if you have your Bibles, we will need it. We will be in it. Starting in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. And while you have the light, believe in the light. That you become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so Jesus has in mind here, yet again, pleading with the people to repent. Right? His entire ministry has been about what John the Baptist called repent and believe. And so Jesus, again, in the final days of his earthly life, is asking these Jews, these Greeks, the words you've heard, believe them. The things you've seen, believe them. The experiences that you have felt in your heart, believe them. Turn and repent. Now we know here in verse 37 that, that they didn't actually turn and repent. Pick up there with me, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So these people, these first century Jews, had experienced the tangible, measurable, visible presence of Jesus Christ. And they still didn't believe. Imagine if there was this orange little thing waddling in front of us and had some webbed feet, an orange beak. He was even wearing a shirt that said D-U-C-K. Probably a duck, right? First century Jews are like, nah, -uh, that's not a duck. There ain't no way this is the savior of the world. No, no way that he is the messianic king that was spoken of. 
And so part of us, if we're honest, we, we look at them and say, how's that even possible? How, how could you have been with Jesus? And what verse 30 says, 37 says, still not believed. And before we, we throw too much egg on their faces, we're not so quick to see God in our own lives, are we? His presence, his protection, his provision is all around us. And we're probably not that quick to see where the Lord is at work in our own lives. But here's where the set of verses gets tricky. Verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, that's kind of clunky language. I really like the New Living Translation there. It says, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Powerful arm in the original text is a lot like what was experienced by the Israelites when Deuteronomy says that the Lord's uh, uplifting arm brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so it's, it ha- has in mind there a, a divine power. But what's, what's more difficult about this text is it seems to be reading that the Lord has decided who he will and who he won't reveal himself to. Because the very next verse, starting in 38, it says, Therefore... They could not believe. Could not literally meaning they did not have the power. They were unable to attain what we would know as Christian belief or faith. So let's reread this in sort of the way that it's outlined. Where John says, they did not believe. After all these signs and wonders, they did not believe in order that Isaiah, what Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 1, Lord, who has believed your message? And who have you revealed your power to? Because they could not believe. Are are we meant to read that verse and merely understand it to be applicable to these Jews that were in the presence of Jesus there at that time? Is there a wider or deeper meaning behind this text? Isn't John chapter 3 verse 16 an indication that God loves the whole world? Doesn't Peter say in 2 Peter 3 9 that God is not slow in keeping his promises wishing that none should perish but that all should come to know him? Are these verses at odds with that? Because the plot thickens here in verse 40. He, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, maybe you're sitting there saying, hey, listen, I know my New Testament. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that it is the God of this world, Satan, that blinds the minds of unbelievers. 
Is John arguing a theological point with Paul? Because it seems to say here that, that God is the one blinding eyes and hardening hearts. Is John meaning to give us some sort of deep insight into how salvation occurs? Is John suggesting that there are people that have eyes that are open and hearts that are softened? And by no choice of their own, there are people that have eyes blinded and hearts hardened. Are we to read these set of verses and wonder in our own life whether we actually have hard hearts? We are in the midst of a season where we don't particularly enjoy the spiritual disciplines or our hearts really aren't in tune with the Spirit. Are we to sort of step back and do a, a fruit check and wonder, are we the Jews of the first century or have we really been captured by the presence of God? Friends, those are really good questions to ask. They're important questions to ask. I think they're questions that alter our faith. But those are not the questions that we're going to ask, and those are not the questions that John chapter 12 is asking. If we are to merely think about the intellectual or theological or uh, otherwise perplexing parts of John 12, 35 through 43, then we will likely spend the next 20 minutes up here in our heads. When certainly, I think the Spirit this morning wants us to have John chapter 12 in our hearts. And I love what Ruth Haley Barton says about the human mind. She says, the human mind is perpetually busy trying to control things, trying to figure things out, clinging to the latest idea, grasping at the nearest straw. It works very hard trying to make sense of things by endlessly seeking to put everything into categories and boxes. God himself is relegated to a category or a box in my mind rather than being free to be God in my life. You know, when we read Genesis, the creation story, let me tell you what Moses is not asking. How old is the earth? Is it 5,000 or 5 million years old? That's not the question that the creation account is asking. Now, that might be a question it's fun to talk about. I think you should talk about it. But that's not what the scripture in Genesis is asking. What, what this verse, these sets of verses, are not asking is the ordo salutis, or what the, the reformers in Latin called the order of salvation. What this set of verses is not asking is who, who, who initiates salvation first? What this set of verses is not asking is whether or not God keeps people intentionally from coming to him or not. That's not what John is asking. And if we merely ask the questions that we want answers to, we try to step in front of the Holy Spirit thinking that we can lean on our own understanding and determine what it is we need to know, when we need to know it, and how we need to know it. If we 
merely engage with the Bible through our own worldview, our own woundedness, our own life experiences, then we are at great risk of only ever seeing a God that we construct rather than the God that actually is. It is imperative for the next 20 minutes that we see God as he was, as he is, and as he always will be. Because that is the question that John chapter 12 is asking. Do you see God? That's the question. Do you see God? God, because we know right here in verse 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw. If you know anything about where this is coming from in the book of Isaiah, it's chapter 6. It's a very famous passage. It's where Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord and is undone. The word saw there in the Hebrew means to pay attention to, to experience, to to learn about. So the remaining parts of the verses, 42 and 43, tell us that the, the Jews there that really did actually believe what they saw from Jesus were too ashamed to do anything about it. They were so worried about being cast out of the synagogue. But Isaiah here, he saw God and he was changed. And so this set of verses these eight verses in john are asking you and i the question do you see god now there are a couple of ways that we could several ways that we could probably see god right we could see god in terms of thinking about the illumination of our hearts in the process of coming to know trust and love jesus the the salvation experience that some of us may have had. We can think about it in those terms. But, But we can also think about seeing God as he's presently and actively operating in our lives. You know, God is not in the clandestine services. He's not trying to be secretive about his work in our lives. He is about us seeing him and what he is about in our lives and in the lives of others around us. But do you see him? Do we see God? Now what's important here, and our brother David last week reminded us of that little small verse in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, see God is much more than just visually. It is experientially. So, go back and read Isaiah 6, 1 through 10, and you see that Isaiah is consumed, that his seeing of God is not just his eyes viewing something. It's He's understanding, he's experiencing, he's observing, he's witnessing, he's beholding. He's consumed by the presence of God. So when we say, do we see God, it's not merely do we see him with our eyes. 
Are we experiencing Him, His fellowship, His presence? It, it would be a lot like a husband and wife being apart and the husband then saying, I get to see my bride. Yes, he will see her with his eyes, but he will hug her, embrace her, experience her, be with her. There's a, a withness to seeing God. One that Isaiah felt, one that Matthew, writing the Gospel of Matthew, felt, one that John felt. Now, we, we can certainly see and experience God through the, the fellowship with an old friend or through watching and observing something beautiful through, or like me, the tasting of good food. I see God regularly there. The laughter of an evening. Those are all ways that we can see and experience and fellowship with the Father. But that is not namely what John is intending with that question. Are we seeing, experiencing, and fellowshipping with the Father? That's the question. Why would we even desire to see God? What would be a purpose in experiencing the Father? It's very simple. It's for our joy and happiness. That's it. That's the ballgame. It's for our joy and our happiness. Several years ago, we did a sermon here about the difference between our happiness and our holiness, and those are not at odds with one another, so... If you're interested in that, go find that sermon. It's for our joy and our happiness. Because what John is not asking is, do you see God from the cheap seats? Several years ago, wife and I were in New York City, uh, walked by Madison Square Garden, and the Knicks were playing. And I said, hey, let's go see the Knicks play. So I bartered with some guy out on the street. We got some tickets. I felt good about it. When we get in, it's like we just kept climbing stairs. I mean, we, just, we ended up like eight rows from the very top of Madison Square Garden. And I'm like, I, I think there's a basketball game going on. I can hardly see it. I had a friend that actually showed up, didn't even know he's in New York, and I randomly, he shoots me a text message, and they're down like on like the lower level. They're really seeing the game. John is not asking whether we see and experience God from the cheap seats in Madison Square Garden. He wants us to know, are we backstage? Are we on the floor? Are we really for ourselves experiencing and seeing and fellowshipping with the presence of the Father? Let's... Let's just spend the last few minutes we have and get really, really practical. Let me give us three ways that we can see and experience God and his fellowship more in our lives. Three ways. Number one is be slow. 
Kosake Koyoma in 1979 wrote a book called Three Mile Per Hour God. And here's his premise. Human beings, on average, walk at a leisurely pace of three miles per hour. Therefore, Jesus, in all of his journeys, would have had to have walked at a regular pace of around three miles per hour. And if Jesus is God and God is love, then love walks at three miles per hour. That's the, that's the, that's the book. But the faster we go, the less detail we see. In the book, Invitation to Silence and Solitude, here's a quote. There is a frenetic quality to our activity that is disturbing. When we do have discretionary time, we indulge in escapist behaviors because we are too tired to choose activities that are fully life-giving. On some level, we suspect that if we did stop long enough to experience our emotions, we might be overcome. Friends, we need to ask the question, why don't we see God more? Why don't we experience God more? It's not because he's not around. It's not because he's hiding. It's because we're moving too quickly. And then you've got to ask the question, why is it that we are so addicted to moving so quickly? There could be lots of reasons there. Let me give you a couple I've seen in my own life. I want to believe in the illusion of my importance. I want to believe that I'm needed. I want to believe that that's just the life that I live. None of those things are true, are they? Not really that important. Neither are you. Because as Corey Tinboom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he will keep you busy. One way that we practically can see and experience God and his fellowship more in our lives is to be slow. Number two is to be alone. Be alone. Name one intimate relationship that you have that could survive if you were never alone with that person. You imagine a, a husband and wife that were literally never alone with one another? Can't make it. In Henry Nouwen's book, The Way of a Heart, here's what he said. We have indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, dwell in the gentle healing presence of our Lord. Without such a desert, we'll lose our own soul. But with such a spiritual abode, we will become increasingly conformed to him. Solitude is not simply a means to an end. It is its own end. In my experience, my resistance 
against being alone is because of my own fear to be alone with my emptiness, my own wounds and trauma, my own fears about the future and uncertainty. If we're never alone with the Lord, two things happen at least. Number one, we begin to rearrange his lordship in our life. If you were never alone with your spouse, whether you know it or not, you would be communicating and practically rearranging the importance of that spouse in your life. And so when we're never alone in the presence of the Father, which has been given to us through the work of Jesus and we're ministered by the Holy Spirit in that place, if we're never alone before the Father, we begin to rearrange our priorities. And the second thing that happens is we begin to take on the false identity of the idols that we've put above Jesus. So if if I've rearranged in my life that work is up here, I begin to lean into the false identity that work wants me to put on. And that comes with a whole set of problems. John has in mind here a type of people that see God and are slow enough to do so, that are with God Alone. And I wonder, I'm going to wonder this out loud. Have we overemphasized community? Have we made community an excuse to look at other people's fruitfulness, other people's faithfulness, other people's own intimate walks with Jesus and wear them like an uncomfortable shirt that doesn't fit us? Have we used community as an excuse to never actually be alone with the Father ourselves? Jesus lived in community. He had 12 road dogs that like traveled Israel with him. But he was alone frequently. For many of us, There's fear associated with being alone. And friends, I have stared down that fear myself in recent weeks. But our aloneness before the Father is where our restoration happens. Number three, just be quiet. Be slow, be alone, and just be quiet. It's a quote from an author. She says, silence helps us drop beneath the superficiality of our mental constructs to that place of the heart that is deeper in its reality than anything the mind can capture or express in words. Eventually, there is a strength born of quietness and confidence. Because time and time again, we have found there everything we need for sustenance. 
Now, I'm not talking about what the secular world would call mindfulness. It, it's not about just being slower or just being quieter or just being alone. People who don't love Jesus do that. There is a particular fullness to the presence of God in quietness. My two daughters, six and four, have a lot to say all the time. It actually baffles me how many words can come out of their little mouths. But they do let me say some things sometimes. How often are we before the Lord listening rather than talking? And listen, I am for a dynamic prayer life. But do we think that what we have to say is more important than what our Heavenly Father might have to say? Because remember, it is in quietness that Jesus heard the voice of the Father to give him courage to go to the cross. It is in quietness that Daniel sat in the lion's den with ravaged animals and was given peace. It's in quietness that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood in thousand-degree furnace and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from this fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, will never bow down to you. It is in quietness that Elijah, when he takes on the prophets of Baal, walks out into the desert and sits in Mount Horeb and waits for the voice of the Lord. It is in quietness that John the Baptist's ministry was born. There's a theme, friends. And it's in quietness where we hear the voice of the Lord, where we hear the name that he's given us. Not the name that this world tries to give us. It's in quietness that we see God for who he is and self for who we are. Now, most of my life I have lived in fear. And I mean fear in all the senses of stillness and quietness. And I've never really even wondered why. I've just been fearful of it. Here's what I'm convinced of now. That for many of us, the silence is louder than the noise that we live in every day. We are deeply fearful What if you slow down, you get alone, and you're quiet before the Lord, and he's actually not all satisfying? What if you leave that space more depressed, distant, and hopeless than before? 
What, what happens if you go out into this proverbial desert before the Lord? And it's just, meh. The essence of who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, the deep secrets that we all carry, the wounds that we're marked by, the fears that we have, the brokenness, we believe that those things are what are most true about us. Our emptiness and our loneliness are not what define us. And if we are quiet and alone with those things before the Father, what we find is that the worst parts about us are handled the same way the best parts about us are. With care and gentleness and love in the presence of the Father. John is asking these first century Jews and Greeks, and he's asking us, do you see God? There was a uh, 1960s song by the Chilites called Have You Seen Her? And I can't really do Motown very well, so I'm just going to speak it rather than sing it. But uh, they say, tell me, have you seen her? I see her face everywhere I go. On the street and even at the picture show, have you seen her? Tell me, have you seen her? It's a song about seeing this girl everywhere. Friends, God can be seen everywhere. And if you will, slow down. Be alone with him and sit quietly. What you will find through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that what defines you is not all the things wrong with you, all the wounds you have, all the fears and anxiety that you carry in your chest and in your arms, the frantic speed in which we operate and move around in life. What you'll find is the most important thing about you is that he loves you. He loves you. In a world where our love for someone or something is directly related to their love for us, no such dynamic exists in the presence of the Father. If we will be slow, we'll be alone. And if we'll be quiet, friends, we will see and experience fellowship with the Father that is restorative to the deepest aches in our soul. There's a, a picture, we're going to close, in Ezekiel chapter 47, where Ezekiel's receiving a prophecy. And he sees the temple. And from the temple, there flows water. And this water is rushing through areas of the desolate Israelite countryside. And so if you can imagine with me, you've got dead ground, no vegetation, no life, no color, just desert. And Ezekiel in chapter 47 sees this, this water, what he calls the river of life, 
moving through and bringing restoration and life and healing and growth to everything that the water touches. Friends, the water is the presence of the Father. That everywhere his presence is, there is fullness and restoration, healing and wholeness. And he can be trusted in even the most intimate places to not wound you, but to comfort you. Be quiet, be slow, and be alone. Or you might miss the presence of the Father. And that is a huge miss for all of us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we trust. We trust. We trust you. The most delicate secrets that we have, the the deepest fears that we have, that you can be trusted to handle them with love and care. That we will not be judged and cast out for our brokenness, but brought in and comforted. That you will not lose your patience with us. Father, if there are some of us in here who've never experienced what it means to see you for who you are. Would you do that today? Father, if there are some of us in here who have been Christians and professing followers of your son Jesus for a long time, and we are in need of the fresh, full, redemptive, restorative, healing presence that you bring. Would you do that for us? Father, if we're in here sort of cruising along, would you wake us up? Would you make us a people that long for Eyes that see you for who you are and for who you always will be. Bless the rest of our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.